All right. Good morning, New Life East. You guys can take a seat when you get a chance. Um, I'm going to be real upfront with you. I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so um, I'm not going to give you the typical, like, I'm being sweet and, like, making small talk with you from the stage. We're just going to dive right in. Sound good? Okay. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're starting in verse 38. Before we read any of that, though, I want to read to you a quote. Uh, by the great philosopher and professor at the University of Southern California, Dallas Willard. He said this a number of years ago. He says, the major problem with the invitation of Jesus now is precisely over-familiarity. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. Think about that for a second. Familiarity breeds contempt. What's his point? He says, well, there's a there's a possibility that we can hear something so much, so frequently, that it just sort of gets lost on us. It loses its power. It no longer really holds much weight in our lives. And the section of scripture that we're going to look at today, I would propose to you, has had that exact effect on most of us. And if you grew up in the church, if you spent your whole life being a Christian or even just Christian adjacent, I would say that it's had an even more negative effect on you Because when we hear these words, we tend to just blow them off. We tend to think of them as maybe like the one moment Jesus really just doesn't understand how to live in the world. We look at it and it's a little crazy, the thing he's proposing. We read his words and we think, man, he's really just missing the mark here. Like he sort of misstepped on this one, right? Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity and then ultimately contempt. I'm going to give you a clue that the passage that we're looking at today is going to make you think about your enemies. And if you're like, I don't know if I have enemies. If there was a face or a name that just appeared in your mind as you heard the word enemies, you in fact have an enemy. It may not be someone who has a name for you. If you're honest, it might just be people who look a certain way. It might be people who think a certain way. It might be people who have a certain amount of money and resources. It might be people who have a certain amount of power or who don't have a certain amount of power. I'm just going to let you know that today, what Jesus has to say to us has to do with the way you live and interact with whoever those people are that just popped into your head. So before we read the scriptures, let's pray and prepare our hearts, and then we'll get into it. God, we recognize that there are moments as we read the words of Jesus that we are challenged and troubled and frustrated. And this morning has the potential to be one of those mornings. So God, what I ask is that you would open our ears to hear things in a fresh new way. That those very moments where we find ourselves troubled and challenged would actually be the moments that you do the greatest work in our lives. That we would somehow leave here today as people with a different outlook and people with a different demeanor on how to deal with those who have wronged us, those who continue to wrong us, those who have hurt us, those who have made us feel shame and embarrassment at the pain that we have experienced. I know that's a big request, but you are a big God, so you can do it. Would you fill us with joy as we read these words of Jesus? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Men, Jesus is going to begin this section of scripture here in just a moment with the words, you have heard 
it said, which is how he begins many of the passages in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus's way of sort of offering his commentary on the Old Testament laws. So what he's doing is what many rabbis would have done in his day is giving his insight or his input onto these words. And this is how Jesus begins it. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is a commentary on a law that exists in Exodus, and it is a whole nother sermon for me to try to unpack that for you, so we don't have time to do it. But Jesus goes on, and he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. That word resist probably better translates for us into the words violently revenge, an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, many of you have heard these words before, and if you're like me, the first time you heard them, it felt like Jesus was just sort of being an idealist, saying some stuff that doesn't really work. Jesus, if you've ever had someone try to punch you in the face, turning the other cheek doesn't really work. And so what we've sort of equated with these words of Jesus is that if you want to be like a serious follower of Jesus, you have to almost become spineless. You have to be someone who just takes it when bad things happen. But if we're honest, most of us in this room, we don't actually take things when bad things happen. So it's put us in a bit of a quandary of what to do with these hard, challenging words of Jesus. Now, let's have a little bit of fun this morning. Um, Can I see everyone raise their right hand? Everyone raise your right hand. Okay, most of you are good. You got right, we know our right from our left. Everyone raise your left hand. Okay, right hand again. Left hand again. Okay, you get where this is going. Colin, can I invite you to come up here for a second for a, uh, a social demonstration of Jesus' teaching? I'm not going to hit him in the face. Some of you are like, man, we've seen pastors really do this wrong. Um, I'm not going to hit him in the face. Now, a couple things that you need to know about the first century in which Jesus finds himself. Your right hand, raise it up in the air again. This is a hand of power. This is a hand of strength. This is the hand you would sign a legal document with. This is the hand that had authority, right? We read in the scriptures, Jesus, when he ascends, he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's this statement about the power that Jesus is now in possession of. Your left hand, raise your left hand real quick. Your left hand is not a hand of power. In fact, there's some documentation from the first century that would say if you identified as a left-handed person, you were just considered like subhuman, you weren't very good. We've sort of switched that now in the modern world. Left-handed people are the creative ones and the best pitchers in baseball and all that stuff, right? Left hand, best yeah, looking. best looking. That's also true. Um, we're both left-handed. Look at that. Okay. This has gotten off track already. I'm trying to keep this on, on straight. So in Jesus's words, he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Now, another thing you need to know is that your right hand is the hand that you would punch someone with. But There's two ways that you would strike someone in the first century. You would either punch them with a closed fist or you would slap them. Now, you don't slap someone with an open hand because there's a hierarchy in Jewish society. When you slap someone, you would slap them with the back of your hand. So if I'm in front of Colin and we're about to duke it out, he's like, he's ready for this. Um, If I'm going to punch him because he's my equal and I'm going to punch him on his right cheek, I've been in enough fights and those of you who have two know that for me to punch him on his right cheek right here is almost impossible, right? For me to punch him on his right cheek, I have to like contort my body 
and I'm not really going to get a good hit on him. It's going to be a bit of a waste of a slap. So what would I have to do in order to hit him on his right cheek with my right hand? I would have to what? Backhand him across his face. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to hit you. So Jesus says, if someone comes up to you and slaps you on your right cheek, he says, turn to them the other cheek, which would be your right. I'm not going to backhand him with my left hand because we don't backhand, we don't do anything uh, except for like bodily hygiene stuff with the left hand in the first century. Um, This is the hand you wipe your butt with. I've made a poop joke. Let's move on. (laughs) So I'm not going to do that. My only option then at this point is to do what with my right hand if his left cheek is presented to me? Punch him. To punch him, though, would say that he is what? My equal. You backhand people that are not your equal. You punch people that are your equal. So if I backhanded you, think about a slave with a slave owner. They come up, right, very hierarchical society. They would backhand the slave in the face. This would be their way of showing what? Power, dominance. I'm in charge of you. You are not as good as me. So if a slave all of a sudden turns their left cheek to their slave master... They have presented quite an interesting quandary for the slave master. I could hit them again, but I would have to punch them, right? Because a right-handed backhand to the left cheek doesn't, it's not very strong. It doesn't look very aggressive. It doesn't look like I have control. So I have a choice. I can either punch him in the face or do nothing. But if I punch him in the face, what have I just communicated to the whole society of hierarchy that I live in? He's my equal. So Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you can go sit down. I just needed them to wonder if I was going to hit you for a while. Yeah, give Colin a round of applause. He did a great job. Jesus is presenting a fascinating idea. He's saying, if someone who is your enemy, someone who has power over you, right? Think Jewish, Roman world. They're oppressed by the Roman Empire. If someone has power over you, they're going to backhand you. So turn to them your other cheek. And what it does is creates a really complicated moment for that person, your enemy, who has somehow wounded you. You can punch me in the face if you would like, but what you are communicating to our entire world is that you and I are equals, buddy. You and I are on the same playing field. Jesus is doing something fascinating. You can sort of already sense it. He goes then to another illustration, the next verse. He says, if anyone wants to sue you, And take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, Matthew and Luke differ on how they say this. They both talk about two layers of clothing, but they sort of switch the order. Probably the better way to understand it in Hebrew is if someone wants to sue you and take your cloak, take your jacket, your coat, give to them your tunic as well. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, in the world in which Jesus finds himself, again, there's this thing known as triple taxation going on in the Roman Empire. What would happen is if you're a Jewish citizen, your city has now been occupied by the governing power of Rome. There's the local tax that you're paying to the Hebrew temple. And what we know about that tax is that it was beginning to be misused. This is why Jesus seems to be so frustrated when he enters into the temple at one point. The tax is being misused. It's being taken by the Sadducees and they're really living really lavish lifestyles. There's historical sort of archaeological research that's been found that they've dug up Sadducees' homes and there are thousands, tens of thousands of dollars bottles of wine in there. They were living well, y'all. They were partying it up with the tax of the people. 
But then you have the Roman Empire who's stepping in as well, who's offering another tax. You got to pay the Roman Empire or something. And then the way that the Roman Empire is getting those taxes to be collected is they're hiring Jewish people to do it. And those Jews have to make some sort of money on top of it. So there's triple taxation going on. There's some estimates that Jews were coming home with about 10% of their income. So whatever you tithe here at New Life East, that's what you and your family were trying to figure out how to live off of. They're in this really difficult spot where their money is being taken. So Jesus says, if someone were to show up because you have no money, you owe a massive debt, and they are taking you to court. They've already taken your, your money in some cases. They've taken your young family to help pay for this debt. They're taking your land. They're taking all of your well-being, and you find yourself in court, surrounded by an audience. And they say, you know what? I want your cloak too. I literally want to take the clothes off of your back. Jesus makes a provocative statement. Give them your cloak and then give them your tunic. Now a question for you um, who are very familiar with the fashion of the first century. What, what is underneath your tunic? You can say it. Nothing. Your birthday suit. Jesus is suggesting that if someone is trying to take everything you have, your enemy is pushing at you so hard. He says, give them your jacket and then just get naked. You're like, why? That's not, that can't be what Jesus is saying. It is what Jesus is saying. Think about a story in the Old Testament. You know, Noah, the guy, he builds a boat. Everyone thinks he's crazy. They sail on the water and then everything subsides itself and becomes okay. Noah and his family get off of the ark. There's a story that happens in the book of Genesis chapter nine. You don't need to turn there, just hear these words. Noah, a man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of his wine, he became drunk, which means he drank more than just some of his wine. And he lay uncovered in his tent. It was a rough night for our guy Noah. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brother. Now, this is pretty harsh for a father to just be like, hey, man, you kind of came in while I was getting changed. You're cursed now from this point forward. In the culture that, that is first century Jewish culture, to be naked is actually not as bad as to see someone naked. In this story, who becomes cursed? Well, it's not Noah. Noah is drunk and naked in a tent. He's not getting everything right. But his son, the one who walks in and sees him, is the one who become cur becomes cursed. Now, translate this back to Jesus. Jesus is saying, if someone has come to take everything from you, take off everything that you have, stand there naked, what has now happened to your enemy, the person who has taken you to court, the person who is trying to rob you of every good thing that you have in life? They have now become themselves religiously and ceremonially unclean. They thought they had the power. But Jesus says something happens when you take your tunic off. The power dynamics completely shift. I had a friend in high school who used to tell me if someone ever tried to beat him up, he thought the best move would just be to get naked because they wouldn't know what to do. 
And Jesus is, in fact, perpetuating that very idea. Your oppressor, your enemy, the person who is taking you to court to take everything from you will be so confused because they have now found themselves ashamed. They've tried to embarrass and ruin you. They've tried to take everything from you, but they are now on the other end of the power dynamic. Everything has shifted. In other words, what Jesus is proposing is if you turn the other cheek, if you give away your cloak and your tunic, your very enemy who believes they have power over you is starting to lose that power. Jesus gives a third illustration. And he says this, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now we've gotten this one really wrong. Even the great Chick-fil-A, anyone in here ever worked for Chick-fil-A? No, okay. Oh, one person, one person, right? I know internally in their organization, they use this language of like going the second mile. For them, they're like, we want to go above and beyond what anyone could expect of us. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is also not talking about that relative of yours that every time you get together, you ask them to bake one batch of cookies and they bake five. Jesus is not talking about the sweethearted person who goes above and beyond. Jesus is actually getting at something so much cooler than that. In the Roman world that the Jews find themselves in, the Roman soldiers, they walked around like they owned the place. And what they would often do is they were allowed, if they got tired from carrying their pack, this big bag that they would hold on their shoulders, right? Because they had armor on, they had weapons, they had all this stuff. If they found themselves becoming physically exhausted, they could go up to a normal citizen and say, ma'am, sir, would you please carry my pack for me? Now, let's just draw this out a little bit better. Who normally carries packs? Not people, animals, donkeys, horses, cattle maybe, maybe even a wagon, but not humans. Humans don't carry packs. You don't offload that onto a human. You offload that onto an animal. So looking at someone saying, would you carry my pack, has some, has some implication right there. You're less than me. You're less than a human. These Roman soldiers would come up and say, hey, would you carry my pack for me? And if someone started to carry their pack, there was Roman law that had been instituted for these soldiers that if they found themselves making someone carry it past one mile, there were some real repercussions. In other words, there's this bit of a parameter on how much damage they can do to someone. You can make them carry it up to one mile, but the moment they cross that one mile marker, you might get in trouble. There's no clear, there's no clarity on what kind of trouble it would be throughout history, but it could be as bad as physical punishment. It might be as bad as a taxation, but there was potential trouble if someone carried your pack more than one mile. So what is Jesus proposing to the people who are listening to him? He says, well, if someone comes up to you and tries to humiliate you and wreck your life by making you carry their pack one mile, the moment you hit that mile marker, you keep going. And what might happen to that soldier? No, 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 please stop. Please stop. If you keep going with this, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get in trouble. I might be physically punished. I might be damaged. What happens again? The power dynamics completely shift. Jesus, in all three of these scenarios, is proposing something so subversive, something so challenging, that many of us, when we read it, we, either, we do what we often do 
in the world that we live in. When someone wrongs us, and I know the stories of people who sit in this room, you've had moments where people have hurt you badly, where people have wronged you. Marriages have fallen apart because people have hurt you. Your bosses have taken everything from you. You've lost your jobs. You've had moments where you've experienced deep pain, not just at the hands of like accidents in the universe unfolding, but someone has intentionally sought out to cause you harm. And the world that we live in, much like the world in which Jesus lives in, says that there's really only two options here. You fight, and when you fight, man, you break them. You get them back. You prove to them that they will never hurt you like this again. You go above and beyond. You seek revenge as much as you can. You either fight or you fold. And this is how many of us have been taught to read the words of Jesus right here. Turn the other cheek is just a statement of folding. Someone hits you, you just take it. And it creates so many questions for us, right? All the hypotheticals. Well, what do you do in war? What do you do when someone comes to you and they're in an abusive marriage? Do you tell them, just turn the other cheek, just take it? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. In fact, what I would propose to you today in our last few minutes is that what Jesus is doing is presenting a third alternative to dealing with your enemies that is not about fighting and getting them back, and it's not about folding. It is this idea that is so subversive that what you do is you shift who holds the power. We know what's true about our God is that our God goes before us. He's the God who fights on our behalf. He's the God who faces every challenge before we ever do. But Jesus is giving us a completely different way to deal with it. And the alternative, as cliche as it will be for you, is when you experience enemies who hurt you, wound you, persecute you. It's not to respond with more vengeance and it's not to fold. It's to respond to them with love. And you're already like, this message is going nowhere because love is so romanticized. We have such a bad working definition of it. I think the best definition I've ever come across is Thomas Aquinas' definition of it, which is to simply say that what love is, it's the choice to will the good of the other. It's the choice to will the good of the other. So Jesus is proposing that even when someone hurts you, wounds you, becomes your enemy, you actually have the ability to still do something that has their best interests at heart and their real best interests. Not their shallow best interests, but their real best interests. So with these last few minutes, I wanna propose to you there's a few ways that we can do this in the world in which we live. And it's, the first one is this, that loving your enemy requires a refusal to do anything dehumanizing to one another. It's a refusal to do anything dehumanizing to one another. When someone does something wrong to you and your natural response is, man, I'm gonna get them back and I'm actually gonna go above and beyond. I'm gonna break them. What that actually does is perpetuate the cycle of injustice and pain and wrong in our world. It doesn't stop anything. Right? How many, times, how many times have you read a story, you've watched a movie where someone has had something so wrong done to them and the quandary they face is, I can get this person back. And there's always a voice of reason that says, but if you do, you will not feel better. It will not make you happier. It will not make you more complete. It will not make you feel better about what has been wronged to you. Jesus says what you do when you, when you go into this third way of thinking against someone who has harmed you, your enemy, 
is you do everything to fight that the humanity and the dignity of all parties is kept. It's you looking at someone who's harming you and saying, I'm removing myself from this interaction, this relationship, this violence that you're causing me, because what you're doing is dehumanizing me, but it's keeping the thought in the back of your mind that it's actually dehumanizing for them to continue to do that thing as well. This is why I've read that social workers will talk about the most honoring, loving thing a spouse can do when they've been abused and wronged is to actually call the police, is to actually deal with the wrongs of that person in a real way. Because the most loving thing you can do for someone is hope that they will be held to an accountability, that they will have a standard set for them, that they will be kept accountable for their actions, wrong, right, or indifferent. Jesus is presenting the same idea. When we turn the other cheek, we're not passively taking it. We're actually actively engaging in fighting for the dignity of all parties involved. Now, this is not easy at all. And it's in fact why I think the next thing we need to recognize about what Jesus is proposing to us is that loving your enemy requires an immense amount of creativity. Creativity is probably never a word you've associated with conflict in your life. That's because most of us are highly reactive people. We don't use any creative muscle. When someone wrongs us, we just do something. Whether it's folding back and completely crumbling down or it's fighting back, we just respond to the situation. Creativity, though, if you talk to anyone who's a painter or an artist or a musician, they'll tell you creativity is a muscle, which means you've got to work it out over and over again. You have to keep flexing it until it becomes a natural response to what you're doing. And creativity takes a number of forms. I read a story recently about a woman, a black woman in South Africa who was walking with her kids and a man came up, disgusted simply by the color of her skin and the way that she looked and he spits at her. The spit lands right in her face and she's not shaken by it at all. You know what she creatively does? She turns and looks at him, she has two kids with her. She says, no, 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 please don't go until you've spit at my children. And she starts laughing. And this man does not know what to do with her. He's, he's completely shocked. The story goes that he just sprints off in the other direction. This, I think, is what Jesus is proposing to us. And when we respond to conflict and pain and oppression and violence and things that have been done to us wrong with some amount of creativity, the people who are actually causing us those sorts of things will not be real sure what to do with us. Jesus, in fact, he gives you a way to start because being creative with our problems and the people who have hurt us is not an easy thing to do. He gives us a really easy way to start. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, you want to get creative off the bat? Why don't you just start praying for the very people who have hurt you? And this is usually where most of us are like, I'm out. I'm out. Jesus, you have no idea what they did to me. You have no idea how unfair they've treated me. You have no idea how brutal and mean they've been to me. I can remember um, I had a boss one time, not Andrew Arndt, different boss. Um, I had a boss one time who every interaction I had with him, I walked away and I felt small. And that's pretty hard to do to me. I don't, it's pretty hard to make me feel small. But every time I would go home and I would feel humiliated, I would be upset, I would be angry, I would be sad. I remember I read this text one day and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna start praying for this dude. 
I didn't even know where to start. Most of my prayers sounded like, would you just make him nicer? Would you just make him better? God, if only he could be like me, wouldn't it be great? But over time, kept praying for this boss of mine, kept praying for him. And still to this day, can I tell you the truth? I have a deep affection for him and a deep concern about his well-being, what I think Jesus would refer to as love, that I still pray for him. And our relationship in many ways was reconciled. In other ways, it wasn't. But the creative response to the pain that had been caused to me was not to be like, you know what, I'm going to get you back. The creative response was to go, God, I'm going to give him to you. Because you know what I think Jesus knew? I think Jesus understood that if you pray for someone long enough, it becomes really difficult for them to remain your enemy. If you pray for someone long enough, it becomes really hard for you to still hate them. It's really hard to pray that that friend of yours who's been really mean to you would have a good life and then still hate them. It becomes really hard to pray for that boss of yours who's unfair and unkind and brutal. It's really hard to pray that they would find success and favor and goodness in their life and still have disdain towards them. Jesus knew that if you pray for someone long enough, eventually they can't be your enemy anymore. They just can't. Which is to say this, and this is, I think, the last spot that I want to hang out today. What Jesus wants us to recognize, I think, is this. Is that truly loving your enemy leaves room for them to be redeemed. And most of us don't like redemption for people we don't like. Most of us don't like redemption for people that look different, think different, talk different, make different money than us. We don't like redemption for them. We want them to be put in the place that we believe they should be in. If they've done us wrong, we use the word justice. We want justice. If they've hurt us, if they've destroyed our family, if they've ruined our vocational clarity, we want them to be dealt with the way that we've been dealt with. But Jesus has a picture of redemption that many of us don't hold, which is that even the most wrong among us can be healed. I think of the story of a man by the name of Daryl Davis. He was a blues musician who one night was simply playing in Maryland at a bar, and he was tearing it up. He was a talented musician. And a group of his friends and a couple other guys come up to him and they're sitting down after his set and they're just talking. And two of these guys, Daryl is a black guy and, and two of these other guys are, that's sitting across the table from him are white. The rest of his friends are black and they introduce each other to one another. And um, this white guy just sort of randomly says, you know, this is the first time I've ever sat down for a drink with someone who wasn't white. And Daryl's kind of like, he thinks that's funny. He thinks it's a joke. He's like, how is that even possible? Like, this is the first time you've ever sat down and had a drink with someone who looked like me. And he says, yeah. And the other guy's like tapping him on the leg. He's like, tell him. Tell him why. And Daryl goes, why why is this the first time? And he goes, well, Daryl, I'm a card-holding member of the KKK. And Daryl thinks it's a complete joke. So they're just kind of shooting the breeze. And before you know it, he recognizes, oh, This guy's for real. I think the thing that sent it over the top was when the guy pulled his clan card out of his wallet and showed it to him. It's like a Costco card. Didn't have a barcode on it. Maybe it did, I don't know. He shows it to him. He says, man, I'm I'm a part of the KKK. This is who I am. I've never sat down across the table with someone like you. 
that one moment is a moment where two enemies are staring face to face. Two people that do not like each other. One who has caused severe damage to the other. One who in the other's eyes is subhuman. And they're sitting across the table from one another. Daryl remains friends with this man for 20 years. One day this man shows up to Daryl's home and looks at him and says, I've been wrong. And he hands him his clan robes and says, I'm done. I can no longer see you as my enemy. You are one of my dearest friends. Daryl's whole life and legacy has been marked by, he's set with over 200 former clan members who have turned in their robes to him because he has chosen to become their friend. That is the picture of loving your enemy, not bowing down, not turning the other cheek so that you continue to be abused, but it's actually finding creative ways to love the very people who should not be loved by you and who do not wanna receive love from you, to find creative ways to shift the power dynamics in a relationship. This is what Jesus was proposing, that even your enemies with enough time and love and creativity can be healed. And is this not, my friends, what the gospel is in fact for us? I think of Paul's words in Romans, that while we were enemies of God, what does he do? He sends Christ, his son, to die on a cross for us so that we may be completely healed. No enemy is beyond redemption. That includes you and that includes me. I wanna invite you to stand as we prepare to go to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus knew that in a short amount of time, the very same people who had oppressed his people, who had hurt his people would hang him on a cross. And Jesus is somehow willing to do it. Not just with you and I in mind, but even with those people in mind, the very people who would drive nails into his hands, this is what Jesus does for the people who stand in opposition to him. He doesn't cower away, he doesn't run away, he doesn't fight back, he finds a third alternative to dealing with your enemies. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? That night he takes a cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, which is poured out for you. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus doesn't pretend that we don't have enemies or that we won't. Jesus's proposal to you and I is that there is a different kind of way to deal with people who hurt us. In fact, Dallas Willard said at one point in his life that the primary thing that differentiates Christian character from everyone else's character is the way in which we respond to the people who hate us. Friends, this is the invitation for us today. Let me pray over you and then we'll receive communion together. God, we recognize the challenging nature of these words. That they're not clear cut and dry for us. Maybe they should be, but God, they're not that we can think of people who stand in opposition to us, who do not love us well, that we can think of people that we have not loved well, that we find ourselves in a space of anonymity with, that we are in fact enemies 
with people. You don't shy away from this reality. But God, you give us a new way forward. And that new way forward is in some ways vague. And in other ways, it is crystal clear that love is the prevailing factor. So God, we ask as we approach the table that you would give us love for our enemies, real love, not romanticized love, not love that has all the feelings, but love that wills the good of another. That you would fill us with love for the very people who have caused us pain and that we would experience it in the same way that you love us. So as we come to the table now, we ask, us, we ask that you would give us a clear vision of the kingdom in our hearts, that you would draw us to repentance where we need to repent, that you would draw us to forgiveness where we need to forgive, that you would draw us to boundaries where there need to be boundaries, that ultimately you would draw us to creatively uphold human dignity and extend love however we can. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. I want to invite our communion servers to come up front. Here's how this is going to go, because this is a new setup in the room. I know some of you are like, how are we going to do this? This section, you are going to come down the middle aisle, but you're going to stay on like this side of the half court line. This section, you guys are also going to funnel down the middle aisle, but you're going to stay on this side of the half court line. If you don't know what a half court line is, it's the large black line in the middle of the room. Just stay on your side. There's gluten-free bread down here. There's juice. You're going to receive that bread. You're going to dip it into the juice, and then you're going to return both sections on the outside to your seat. Sound good? Come and receive communion.